I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is someone I just met literally a week ago. I was being interviewed by him on his passion project. Not so much just a passion, as a matter of fact, a very, very successful long-form blog, if you want, called Thought Economics. Vikas Shah is an entrepreneur, he's an investor, he's a philanthropist. He is a CEO of Swisscott Group, which focuses on the textile business. He is a non-executive board member of the UK government's Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. He's a non-executive director of the Regulation Authority. Vikas was awarded an MBE for his services to business and to the economy by Her Majesty the Queen in 2018. And he is an honorary professor of business, teaching as a visiting professor at the Alliance Business School, University of uh, Manchester and MIT Sloan, Lisbon. Vikas is also the chair of In Place of War, which is a global NGO that uses arts and entrepreneurship to foster change in over 32 places impacted by the conflict of war and uh, is deeply involved in poverty alleviation in the UK. An amazing person in every possible way. He started his first business when he was 14. And in an unusual way, when we started to have our conversation last time, I realized I had a lot to learn from Vikas. So I asked him to come and join me on Slow Mo. And this actually is our introduction as new friends. You know, think about it as you joining us for the first coffee conversation we're about to have. I found an incredible person in Vikas. I hope you will too. I will hopefully ask him to explain to me how he became what he became, not just what he is right now. And maybe there is something for all of us to learn there. Vikas Shah. There you are. Again, we just spoke last week and uh, I don't know how to start this week. So I've developed this very weird habit. You're the second guest I have here where I sort of establish our friendship on slow-mo, right? So we spoke last week for Thought Economics, which was a mind-boggling conversation. We went into every part of our future and you're amazing. And then you put that into your thought economics blog. And then we decided after the conversation that I really would like to be your friend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> likewise. Yeah, exactly. So I said, come over, let's get more introduced on slow-mo. And I think the idea here is, and I, I would say that, of course, with enormous respect, I then researched you. And oh man, like, what are you? <laughs> <Like> what, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? Like, there is so much. You have titles and awards from Her Majesty the Queen and board memberships and entrepreneurship and an author and academic and the list goes on and on and on. So I don't know where to start. I actually well, think, 
Yeah, go ahead. I think one of the fun bits is that was never the plan. Like, <laughs> is that, like isn't that always I, the case? Huh? Yeah, like if I go back to teenage Vcas, all those years, I mean, it's a long time ago now, all those years ago, this was never the plan. The plan was to become a pilot. It was really simple. That was no it. No way. That's the only thing. So we grew up right next to an international airport in Manchester. And so I grew up literally watching the planes coming and going every day. And I was fascinated by them. And I managed to um, build a little airband radio so I could listen to them, to listen to what the pilots were saying. And that was the dream. That was literally the dream was to become a pilot. So, so this alternate life that I kind of live now would never have been expected. Talk about being off plan. I mean, like, man, you couldn't have done worse. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In an interesting way. I mean, even though you've done really well, to be quite honest. So, so where, where did it go right or wrong? I so so where, where did it go right and wrong simultaneously? So it was kind of funny. So, so being a pilot is a very expensive career choice. And... Um, The only two routes for me were either A, join the Air Force and go into becoming a pilot that way, or it was um, to have rich parents. And neither of those things were going to happen. So I had to figure out a plan. And there was one day, so my dad always worked on his own trading fabrics and he'd bought a computer in his office, basically because his accountant told him to. I mean, to put it in perspective for you, it was only a few years ago that he actually got an email for the first time, right? So... Uh So I, I went into the office and into his office and there was this computer sat there, Packard Bell, 486 DX, 25 megahertz, incredible power machine. Look at and, you, um, Techie. Oh, Look at you, what. Techie. We are the only people on <laughs> earth that would remember that. And and now I'm pretty sure that my AirPods have, have more processing power. But the um, <laughs> That's true. the funny part of it is I'd always also enjoy drawing and like being creative. So I, I opened this computer, found this thing called paint and all these other apps on there learned to kind of design started doing bits of freelance design when i was like 12 13 and then this the cd for something called compuserve dropped in which was the early internet and i was like my mind was blown i was like what is this this is incredible so so i literally learned how to build elementary websites and then picked up a phone book and um i started ringing businesses around manchester saying look i'll build your website for 50 pounds and it was a very simple plan Every two websites I built would pay for one flying lesson. So that was when I was about 13. I was still, you know, obviously at school. By the time I was 16, I now then had employees in Manchester, London, New York, and Sydney. And so I think that was probably the point at which I sort of settled that maybe I should take a different career choice from flying. Did you actually ever become a certified pilot? Yes, yes, on light aircraft. So no, not not quite as fun, but... um. But nevertheless, that scratch was itched. <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you this. I had the weirdest experience ever, actually, with being a pilot because I worked in Silicon Valley for a long time. And I don't know about if you've lived in Silicon Valley. It was difficult for me. It wasn't really exactly my environment. And I had that dream of living in Santa Barbara and flying. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. And flying instead of driving to work every day. You know, people will think this is crazy, but those lightweight aircrafts are actually not much more expensive than a car. And, you know, and I basically said, this is it, right? And ended up on my very first flying lesson, which was given to me by a very dear friend, having every possible disaster in the history. I'm serious. Like, <laughs> oh we, no! I swear to you, we tried to take off for at least like three hours. And every time we would try to take off, the plane would have a problem. 
And then basically I said, okay, maybe not today. And he insisted. He said, you have to come back tomorrow. Otherwise, you'll be afraid of flying. And so I came back tomorrow and it was the windiest day in the history of California. (laughs) (laughs) This tiny little thing was literally like a fly, right? And he was somehow, because he was such an experienced pilot, he started to say, look, you know, you can leave the thingy, the control, the joystick, whatever that is, and it will absolutely be stable. And I'm like, that's the worst demo you can ever do for someone in my situation. Never again, never will be. I will never be a pilot. And I I am actually grateful that I'm not. But now you are. So what are you doing with your life? Why are you not flying? It's strange, isn't it? Because what you think, it's it's weird. I don't believe in destiny, but but I'm going to put a sort of bold underlined, but I do think that if you experiment enough in life, you will find your niche. You'll find what it is that, that you can do where doing it feels right and feels so attuned to who you are that it just makes sense. And Flying was that, but I'm also glad I didn't pursue it because this other avenue of creating things in business and having this diverse, interesting life, I think, A, felt perhaps better, perhaps more natural, and also allows me to do more because what I really enjoyed about flying was the actual practice of flying in the light aircraft where you are at the controls and you are literally, you know, pulling cables and pulleys because that's basically what you're doing. Exactly, yeah. And you're flying. And that's a very different experience to to the highly automated world of airline flight. And I, I had a few experiences where I flew some light jets and things. And yes, they're not airliners, but they do still have fly-by-wire and automated systems. And it just wasn't as much fun. I was like, I'm bored. I, I didn't enjoy it. Whereas actually flying the light aircraft where literally it is you versus cloud versus bird. I mean, that that was just... <laughs> yes. I mean, that's just a remarkable sensation. And, and it's one of those things where we as a species, you know, we're basically just very advanced super monkeys or meat robots, depending on how you look at it. And, and there's certain things which we're sort of not designed to see. You know, we're designed to kind of exist in forests and tundra and so on. And so when you're in a light aircraft on your own, peaking just above the clouds. And it's one of those experiences you can't go back from. And it's very different to being a passenger because when you're a passenger, your agency in that experience is removed because you're not flying it. You're just a passenger. Whereas when you are flying it and you are responsible for for that journey, you are. it's about as close as I think we'll ever come to feeling like what it is to be a bird or to be free. Hmm. But don't you think the analogy is quite interesting because what you ended up doing does not seem that you were flying either. I mean, you just drifted from interest to interest. I mean, all around business, all around technology, all around knowledge, but they seem to be quite diverse. It doesn't seem like you had a flight plan, if you want. They're diverse on the outside, right? Because, you know, over the years I've been involved in businesses and charities and then much like yourself, you know, enjoy interviewing people and, you know, all sorts of things. And I, you know, wrote a poetry book and, you know, all, just, just generally lots of, yeah, generally lots of things. But from the outside, one could look at those and go, it doesn't make sense. But from the inside, it does, because all I'm doing is following the threads. So I'm following where does life lead? What is the door that opens? Like, I'll, I'll give you a funny example. 
I never thought I'd ever get into the film industry. It wasn't kind of on my radar. And um, I was asked to be on the board of this film festival. And um, the director of the film festival is a guy called Simon. And he's a film writer. And I remember at the time I was due to go on some business trips to South America and I was flying on, going to be taking some flights internally there on, on LAN. And it's not the, not the greatest flying experience. So I said, send me some scripts. I've never read a film script. I'd love to read a film script. So I started reading these film scripts in the afternoon and I thought, oh, this is amazing. It's basically like reading theatre meets poetry on a page. And so I rang Simon that afternoon and said, look, let's make a film. Like, how hard can it be, right? I mean, (laughs) it is really, really hard as it turns out. But that spun out a film business, which was never on my list of things to do. But it was just a thread that I followed and it worked. And lots of them don't, by the way. I think it's really important for people to realize that when they hear stories like mine, it's very easy to look at a story like mine and go, oh, wow, like he's had this trajectory and everything's been beautiful and wonderful. It hasn't. There's been plenty of failed threads, plenty of dead ends, plenty of lost money, plenty of lost night's sleep. It's just that some of them have worked. Mm, I think this is truly, really, I mean, couldn't be said better. Uh, In reality, as I look at my life as well, I think there is a big part of it that basically follows life. And there is a big part of it that actually completely messed up. Of my businesses, I think at least 70% have failed, right? Yeah. And I think most people will look at success and take that snapshot in time and say, okay, look at this person, you know, so successful. And the reality is nobody's ever, I think that resilience of, oops, I tried it, didn't work. Let me try something else is probably the biggest asset anyone can use to explore life, right? It's strange, isn't it? Because oftentimes the people who do in inverted commas best at life are the ones who've either gone through a severe tragedy or they've had some, some hardship of experience. That means that they grow up And, you know, a business failure is one of those. It's not a failure on on a mortal level, like it can be in many ways, but you learn something from it. And so when I'm, for example, in later life now, as I say, investing in businesses and looking and meeting entrepreneurs, I'm really worried about the ones that haven't had a failure because I worry that naivety of inexperience, whilst in some ways is wonderful because it gives you that kind of visionary nature that says anything is possible. But... Anything is possible from a creative perspective masks the fact that anything is possible from a risk perspective. And that latter point is also a really important life lesson to learn. So I do think it's important. I think those experiences are important. You know, I think for me, again, going back to when I was when I was younger, the building of resilience from being bullied, from having a very, very tough time in some ways when I was younger, I think was was really important. And so I I worry sometimes that if we isolate our lives too much, we won't have the diversity of hard experiences that we need to build the resilience to then succeed. Hmm. Which in other words, basically means uh, you should love failure so much that you should orchestrate your life to have a few of those, because those are really, I mean, not necessarily go out there and say, I'm going to fail this time, but stretch yourself to the point where it becomes a little more likely to either succeed big or fail, right? Do you know, it's not even just failure. It's you can't shield yourself from painful experience, right? Because 
anything worth having in this life will come with the chance of a painful experience. You could start a business, it could fail. You could have a conversation with someone and get rejected. You could get married and get divorced. You can lose a loved one. And nothing in life that has any meaningful benefit to us, that has any meaning to us more broadly, comes without that risk of pain. Failure is just one type of pain. There's plenty of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all sorts of pains that we can have. And the more we try and avoid pain, the more we are fundamentally facing in the wrong direction as beings. So I think that's the truism, is not necessarily set our lives up to ensure some failures, let's say, but more that we set our lives up to not avoid pain and realize that that is just as much a part of a well-lived life as the beauty and happiness and love, which also constitutes a well-lived life. But don't, you, don't you think that it's actually instinctive within us? I mean, pain avoidance is really part of our mammalian brain. It's really... Completely. It's how we're designed to be. You're supposed to avoid pain and seek reward and pleasure. And that's one way of ensuring the species survives, yeah. no? Completely. But also, our mammalian brain, as you say, will react in the same way that you're going through a forest, you hear a noise, and you'll suddenly fill up with adrenaline and maybe run. And so we have these subconscious programs which ensure that we are protected as beings. But, but also, as you know, those programs were written for a different time. And we will often be in situations where actually, you know, so I'm the chair of a global NGO, we work in war zones, and actually that instant mammalian reaction to danger is very useful in those scenarios, let me be honest. But for most of life, it isn't. You know, there's very little that's happening in our life that requires that kind of instant primal reflex. And part of developing resilience is making sure that your brain's executive knows what is and isn't real risk and what risk really is. It's when I went through decades of anxiety and depression, I really realized that a lot of that was just a very poorly tuned mammalian reflex to danger. Explain that a little more, elaborate. What does that mean? So I went through a long, long period of being very anxious and that led to depression and all sorts of things. And Which by the way, for everyone listening, you wouldn't guess from looking at Vikas' success today. Again, one thing that's very interesting is that we look at people who are in the spotlight and we say, oh my God, their life is amazing. They've never had a difficult part of their life. But the truth is, no, we all have been through that. Absolutely. And I mean, that period was bad. Like there was, whilst I would caveat it with a slight trigger warning, there was four suicide attempts, one of which got very close. Oh, wow. And I didn't have a language to understand what was happening until I really sort of sought out therapy and, and help. And, you know, one of the things is exactly what we were talking about, which is we're basically these stone age creatures that are designed for a world where actual life-threatening danger is ever present. And we're tuned for that. We're extraordinarily good at that. But the problem is in modern life, it's very rare that we're going to be facing those mortal dangers, but some of us probably always will. Like, but we probably all had that experience in a car where we suddenly tense up and the adrenaline runs before we even know what's happening. We probably all had that experience sometimes crossing the road where our body gets us out of the way before our mind realizes what's happening. But the stress of modern life, the pressures of work, the pressures of life, the pressures we put on ourselves can also stimulate and simulate some of those stresses. 
not just in terms of the the physiological inputs that we're giving ourselves that create that stress response, but also the catastrophizing. There's very few of us who haven't sat there and been wondering about a project. And before you know it, the world's ending in your mind and everything's going to go to hell. And, and again, when you think about that, your body will have a physiological response because that process in your mind is designed for you when you were a Stone Age man wondering, okay, I'm going to go out with my spear today. How do I try and not get killed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the truth is, all of us that are alive on this planet today, you know, whether we're kind of big, strong individuals or slightly more svelte individuals like me, although I used to be quite a big lad, we're all the success stories of those millions of Stone Age individuals. So we are the success stories of the best of the best survivors. And so it kind of makes sense that we'd be tuned like that. And then that way, what we're saying is keep that, but basically as a response to the possible pain, not as an avoidance mechanism for future. Correct. Pain. Yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things like there's a real beauty to pain and it's a difficult thing to say, but Sometimes the most painful experiences we have can also reveal beauty within us, within others, within the world. There's very few people that get to, I think me and you are probably very similar ages, and there's probably very few people that get to the ages that we are. Oh, you're 22 as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 22? Oh, I'm 21. Oh. I'm a little younger than you. But, you know, there's, there's very few people that get to the tender age of 21 and 22, respectively, who've, who've not experienced some severe grief in life. And when you experience death and then sunrises become more meaningful and sunsets become more meaningful and music becomes more meaningful and tastes and smells become more meaningful. That's beautiful. That's amazing. And yes, it comes from pain, but it is beauty in every sense of the word. So by denying ourselves pain, we're denying ourselves actually some of the most beautiful experiences that, that life could possibly offer. I think that's an amazing view. I'm, I'm writing, as you know, I write several books at the same time. One of them is about relationships. It's called Finding Love. And I think, I believe this functional or the lack of a relationship is probably the third largest reason for unhappiness in the world. But basically, the mechanism that we go through, the process that we go through, where we either are afraid to venture out and experiment and be open to experiences, and that's a form of pain avoidance or being stuck in a relationship for a very long time is also a form of pain avoidance. It's probably one of the prime reasons why we end up not finding love. The idea of being open to say, hey, you know what, this is not working. I'm going to go out there and try again. Or I went on a date and that date didn't really turn out to be what I'm looking for. There will be other dates, right? There will. And, and this is where the formative power of dark experiences can sometimes be, be overlooked. So, so I'll give you an example. So in my, in my life, the fact that I've quite literally been stood on top of a car park thinking that's it i'm done there's nothing else really life can throw at me that's going to beat that in terms of darkness and so but i got back from it i recovered moved forward and so you know that something awful can happen and you can move on and this is the thing like you said with love oftentimes the people who are most scared of love are either the ones who've experienced a tragic heartbreak or or maybe they're just not confident in themselves or they're scared and but at some point you've got to realize that you know what yes you could meet somebody you could think they're the one everything could be fine but then it could all go to hell and you could be on your own again and that's okay because you'll move on and you'll get over it 
But that last bit, the you'll move on and get over it, sounds quite glib. It sounds like it's a throwaway comment, but it's probably the most important bit is if it doesn't work, you'll move on and you'll get over it. Because every day on this earth, 130,000 people die of all sorts of causes. And every single one of those individuals in general is going to leave people who are going to feel immense pain for some period of time and they will move on and they will never necessarily get over it, but they'll learn to live with it. So this is not a unique experience to us. Every single person on the planet is going yeah. through this. That's the sort of the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. Mm. I think that's an amazing way of looking at it. The idea of not personalizing those challenges to oneself. Another thing I saw when we chatted a bit last time is that you don't really do things for the same reasons others do. Like your thought economics work, whether it's the book or the blog, you don't do this for any reason other than, man, I enjoy this so much. You're not making any financial gains from it. You're not really pushing it to its extreme to get fame or popularity, even though it is very, 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 very successful. And you met how many? It's funny. I was I was doing a little tally this morning before we spoke, and there's been 390-something wow. interviews on there since 2007. That's a lot of hours of your life. And yeah. you're not doing this to succeed or make money or, well, you know, why are you doing things? Why do you choose to do things? This is going to sound really odd coming from somebody who's built their life in business, but we've got to think about what constitutes success. So if I look at my life, if all I did was business and nothing else, I'd probably be several X richer and probably be joining you today from a beautiful boat somewhere and having that conversation. <laughs> I probably would have flown you out to my beautiful boat to have the conversation. Hey, what am I, who am I kidding? But, you know, that comes from a perspective where, and again, I say this as somebody who's, who's not particularly religious, but that comes from the perspective of money being your God, where the only thing that matters is the accumulation of wealth, and that gives you a sense of identity and value. And I think, for me personally, I think... The succeeding financially is one component of succeeding. And in many ways, if that was the only component that I succeeded in, I would still feel like my life was empty because, yeah. so what? I have a few more gold coins in the bank. Who cares, right? Yeah. But the other side of it is succeeding with a good relationship, succeeding in learning, in adding something to the world. Like that last bit is really important to me. So, when I had my first business, when I was still really young, I was in the States a lot then. And, you know, I was meeting people in the States who even very early in their careers were engaging in philanthropy. And I was very curious because the culture here in the UK at the time was you do that when you're retired, you know, when you've made your money and you retire, you know, you join a round table. And I remember asking people in the States, like, what, why do you do this now? And they said, well, you know, I'm young enough. I've got the energy and the contacts. I may as well do it now. And then when I retire, I can properly retire. But it also made me think, well, whilst I've got the energy, the resource and the contacts to, to make a difference, to leave the room a little bit cleaner than the room I came into, maybe I should. And also, if that isn't enough of a calling, you, we all have to realize that it is pure fluke, like the statistical likelihood of us even existing is minuscule. And the statistical likelihood of us existing in a situation where we have enough to eat on a daily basis is even more minuscule. And then 
the statistical likelihood of us existing, having enough to eat every day, and actually having a very comfortable life is so infinitesimally small that just on the basis of that, we owe it to ourselves to help the people who didn't win that lottery of math. And so on that basis alone, I feel obligated to do more than just accumulate gold coins in the basement. But most people will tell me and, you know, I suffer from a bit of that, you know, oh, you, of course you can do that because you made it, right? You. That's true. I mean, yeah. the fact that the businesses have grown and, you know, some of them have done okay, that gives me the flexibility to do those things. But, and this is really important, those things were always there. Even when the businesses were tiny, even when they were a startup phase, I still had like other things, just maybe not at the same level. Maybe I was volunteering in an organization rather than being on the board of an organization. Maybe I was attending the occasional meeting with government rather than sitting on one of the main departmental boards of the grand offices of state, as it were. So it was always there. But it's like with anything, right? You know, sometimes you can often say the difference between a small business and a large business is just the, the number of zeros on your problem. And it's the same thing with those other aspects of life. The success that I've been afforded through my work means I can do things like this means that I can interview people, means that I can come on an amazing podcast like yours. But I always tried to do things like that. It's just the scale was different, but I've always done it. You know, it's again quite interesting what you just said, because a lot of people don't recognize, again, whether you're religious or you believe in, in the systems of life, if you want. The idea of either delayed gratification or delayed contribution seems to be quite prevalent. It's like, let me focus on my business. Let me focus on making money and then I'll do this later, right? I found in my life that life sort of tests you. If it gives you $10 and you can give away 10 cents, or, you know, if it gives you eight hours a day and you can dedicate half an hour of them to actually making a difference, then it's sort of, you know, like my wonderful daughter always says, it sort of says, oh, this guy, that guy actually can contribute. Let's pay him in advance yeah, so that he doesn't have to worry about the mundane things and actually can put more than the 10 cents and more than the half an hour. It seems to me, I don't know if there is a, I can prove that with science, but it seems to me that those who actually work to help life, life seems to work to help them in an interesting way so that they can actually contribute more. I think that's true. I think there's also, there's also something really profound in what you said before, where you talk about later, right? You talk mm. about delayed gratification, and you talk about the concept of later. And it's a hell of a gamble for us to assume we have a later. <laughs> That's so true, yeah. Because I've had friends of mine who are young, healthy people who've been yeah. hit with cancers. And the fact that we assume we have a later is a huge gamble. And it's not a gamble that I'm willing to take because yeah. I can't be sure of that. When we finish this recording and I go across the road to go grab a coffee, there might be somebody in their brand new fancy car who's driving very quickly and hits me. Who knows? It's just as likely as not happening. So that reality that later is a concept we can't toy with is important. But I do think that, I think there is something in what you said around doing more can open more doors, but I would tie it back to the science of serendipity. So we talk about serendipity as being this kind of wonderful sort of woo-woo concept, right? But actually there is a science to it and there is actually research in serendipity and, and it studies luck and it studies, you know, creativity and all those aspects. And to put it in a very simple way, you know, when I started Thought Economics, I had the real honor of, because I used to fly a lot 
in the before times. I used to go and see lots of interesting people that I was interviewing and I used to look at their bookshelves and look at what they were doing. And I always found it really fascinating that there's not many very successful business people I know that read business books. There was not many (laughs) very successful musicians that read music books. And the truth of the matter is that the most successful business people I ever met were the ones who were deeply knowledgeable about a bit of everything, philosophy, music, history, art, science, everything. And the reason for that is really simple, right? Because, you know, most of us, when we were children, we probably did those join the dots where you follow your pen around the numbers and it draws a cat or something, but you can only join the number of dots you have on the page. And the more diverse your life is, the more you're increasing the number of dots you have on the page. And so the more beautiful your picture gets. And so I think rather than it being a complex science. I think when you when you introduce more into your life and allow more things to come into your life, you're naturally going to be presented with more opportunities and more more chances and more more projects that you can undertake. Fascinating, really. I mean, in a very interesting way, really, you would have more life if you think about it, right? You would have more everything because it just feeds off itself. Right. So if you understand a bit of physics and a bit of spirituality, you may see the world very, very differently than if you're just focused on physics. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah. And and it's funny because quite a few of the interviews I've done have been around physics and, and spirituality, weirdly, because I'm, I'm always keen on that kind of discovering who are we as these strange little creatures. Did you ever find out? Not really. (laughs) Okay. I may be like a smidge closer to answering, but not statistically significantly closer. But what I find really interesting is we had this period of the Enlightenment where theology and science kind of got separated and they went from sitting around the same table to sitting at different tables in different buildings. But actually, as the science bit developed... And the science bits got far more advanced over the last half century in particular. The kind of questions that science is now asking are kind of the questions that theologians ask. Because we're now getting to the point where we're we're starting to ask philosophical questions of our science. And this is also where it's really important to have that diverse set of interests. Because in quantum physics and certain areas like that, the questions are not now you know, what happens when we smash this atom into that atom? We're now at the point of which we're discussing, well, do things actually exist? What do things mean? Does time exist? What if time doesn't exist? What if things are infinite? These are the kind of questions that physics is asking now. It's an astonishingly mind-bendingly beautiful thing to try and wrap your head around. But the one thing that I worry about sometimes is because society praises at the altar of deep domain expertise, we sometimes don't allow that to come in. So I teach on a few MBA programs as a visiting prof, which is kind of fun because I was never very academic. And um, one of the scariest things to say to MBA students is please don't read business books. And so at the start of the MBA program, I'll say to them, look, if you can, if you can draw yourself away from the next big business text, please read something else. I want you to read, maybe read some Dostoevsky, maybe read some philosophy, maybe read some art history, read some deep spiritual texts that have been translated from Sufism, because that's how you're really going to understand how the world works, not from reading the biography of a billionaire. That is so interesting. I actually never noticed that. I remember when Malcolm Gladwell started to become Malcolm Gladwell, 
which I think his writings were things like Blink and The Tipping Point and all of those. They were in a way, you know, useful for your business. You, you needed to think about Blink in a business setup and so on. But in reality, they get you to think about Blink following your gut feeling and intuition and, you know, maybe, as I call it now, empowering a bit more of your feminine in life as well. And I think that, to me, was the turning point. Before that, I only read business and economics and mathematics yeah. and physics. I mean, I always read physics, religious, really, really. And religions, I mean, anyway, I stopped reading business as of that point, business and economics. I stopped reading those completely. I started to go into some unbelievable experiences of life that are not about making money, but they help you succeed in business because yeah. knowing more is good for you, isn't it? And to use a, it's an odd analogy that I'm about to use, so forgive me, but if we use the, the analogy of like a disease, right? Too much of our life, we're studying the spot that appears on the skin and not the reason why the spot appeared on the skin in the first place. And the same is true of knowledge. I agree. I think books like Blink are brilliant. It's one of my favorite books. And I think it's it's a really good primer, right? But yeah. by reading things like that, and you know, please forgive me, Malcolm, if you're listening, we're reading the spot. We're not reading the cause. Whereas then you deep down, you start to study aesthetics. You start to study the philosophy of the feminine as it relates to human civilization. And all of a sudden you start to understand the philosophical beliefs that have been passed across dozens of generations that manifest in what we can call something like blink. But here's the thing, when you start to internalize some of the philosophy of society, everything does make more sense intuitively. And that's sometimes what the popular science books are, is they're, they're looking at that kind of surface level aspects of these very, very deep and often very hard to grasp concepts in, in philosophy and culture and aesthetics and all those other areas. Isn't that what you've been doing with thought economics? Let's talk about thought economics for a while, because I have to say it's fascinating, like the breadth of people that you spoke to and the depth of the conversation. So our conversation wasn't really, okay, so what's going to happen with AI, right? It was much deeper in terms of the meaning of that to humanity, where it came from and so on and so forth, which I found, I don't know how to call it. There was a genuine interest even though I know you know about the topic as much as I do, or probably more, to get another point of view. So how does that work in thought economics? What are you trying to attempt? How does it translate into the final product? So when thought economics began, it began as a bit of um, a rebellion to the change in media. So I got really annoyed that long form was going and being replaced with kind of sound bites and infographics before the kind of podcast era. So I just started interviewing people I'd been lucky enough to meet at conferences and things like this and just, just doing, doing pieces. And then I suddenly realized, well, there's a big wide world out there of people who are genuinely making an impact on how our civilization is today and how it will be in the future. And... I need to meet them. I need to, I need to <laughs> understand what's happening. And so the reason it's called thought economics is because we crossed through the industrial era broadly. And in the industrial era, the engine of civilization was the machine. And that meant the machine and the physical manifestation, but also us as machines. And now we're in an era where civilization is anchored around the power of ideas. And those ideas manifest in our gigantic software businesses. They manifest in cultural conflict, all sorts of things. And so thought economics, that's where the name came from. And the principle is, I just want to speak to everyone who's 
making a major impact on how our world has become the way it is and is shaping it in the future. And so because of that remit, the questions I ask have to be really broad because I agree, like, for example, you know, it's very kind of you to say, but if I know fraction of a percent of what you do about AI, then I'm doing better than most people. But for example, you will have a deep knowledge of AI in a practical sense, and that's great. And there's, but there's also lots and lots of things written about that. What was important for me is how does this affect us as beings? How does it affect civilization? How does it affect culture? How does it affect humanity? Because that's the bit that really we're going to feel when this becomes one of those technologies, when it becomes that singularity from where we cannot return. And, and so that's where you've got all these different concepts. So I've spoken to dozens of Nobel Prize winners, lots of entrepreneurs, former world leaders. I've spoken to people like Maya Angelou, Noam Chomsky, Buzz Aldrin, all sorts of people with those big, broad questions, because that's what's going to really impact how we understand civilization, rather than sometimes the, the higher level questions, which, which to be fair, they've probably always been asked before. You know, one of my greatest wins in life is when someone says, great question, because then I'm like, I'm doing my job well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with all of this, where do you think we're going? I think we're in a very dangerous point as civilization at the moment, because we've convinced ourselves of our own primacy mm -hmm. by virtue of our strength. We've made sharper and sharper and longer and more advanced spears to the point where as far as we're aware, we're the only civilization that's ever existed on this earth that has enough weaponry to end it. And that's dangerous. We're also at a point where we've, we've come out of, arguably, I think in a good way, come out of a very religious society globally. And we know that religion has been an anchor of so much of our social ill, but we came into a secular civilization and then didn't really come to any kind of settlement as to who we are. And so we end up now with culture wars, which then manifest in real wars and real conflict. And again, it's extraordinarily dangerous because those are the kind of flickers and sparks that can sometimes create real war. I also worry the conversation we had about technology. We are now at a point where we have the capability of creating technologies that have the capacity to do what our near-term ancestors would have considered the realm of the gods. And this isn't sci-fi anymore. This is, this is really, really real. So I think probably more than ever, we need to almost have that deep conversation as a society. Who are we? What do we want? What are we here for? How are we all going to live together as beings? And how are we going to resolve what the future should be in a way which doesn't end us. Because guess what? The capacities for us to be destroyed are, are huge and they're real. Wow. Well, I have to say, I've been thinking deeply about this. I add climate degradation as a, the cherry on top, if you want. And it all goes down in my personal view to two sides, really. One is an inability to communicate and agree. Because all of that, interestingly, is the work of man. And I say man here with a very clever choice of words because, sadly, we also don't include the feminine view in anything that we do. And so between those two, we are becoming, as a civilization, incredibly capable at doing the wrong things. We build more and more and more and more, and everything that we build has the capacity to destroy us, as you rightly said. 
And I don't know the answer really, because I'm also, I also remain very optimistic. Somehow deep in my heart, yeah. I believe we're going to figure it out. I do. I really genuinely do. How? I mean, I don't know how we can engage the conversation, to be honest. So sometimes it's the small moments of, I mean, it's going to be an odd phrase, but it's the small moments of humanity that give me faith, right? So I'll give you an example. So through our NGO, one of the places we work is in the north of Uganda on the border with South Sudan. And, you know, that, that's a part of the world that only came out of conflict not too long ago in real terms. And we went to visit a farm there. We met the lady who owns the farm and she'd lost her sons in the civil war. And there was some young men working on her farm. And so I asked, you know, who were they? And she went, well, they were former rebels. And I said, but weren't your sons killed by rebels? Yes. So, but they're rebels. And I was trying to be deliberate with my questions to try and find out how this happened. And she said, well, the war's over. They deserve a chance as much as anyone else now. Oh, wow. Now imagine that level of humanity where the reality is that those two people who are now working on her farm could have been the ones that killed her family, right? That is probably testament to our ability as humans to believe in the good in humanity. And when you see enough examples like this, you remain optimistic because from the greatest challenges that we face, there are moments where we will prevail. And I think the challenge is sometimes trying to figure out what can we do? What can we do that persuades most people to think like that, that allows them to come off Instagram for a few minutes, that allows them to come off TikTok for a few minutes, learning the latest dance to just reflect on, on the fact that we are here and we are here because billions and billions of our ancestors died and the ones that succeeded gave birth to someone. And then billions and billions of people died. And the ones that succeeded gave birth to someone. And eventually, from that whole chain of people, we're here, right? And most civilizations that came before us, and actually some civilizations now, so I'm thinking there particularly about the non-Occidental civilizations of the world, do believe that you have a duty of care to move forward from what you have inherited from your ancestors. And I don't mean that in a very literal, spiritual way, perhaps. But in the very real sense that you do have a lineage that stretches back to, you know, proto-humans. And it is because of that lineage that you exist. And so you surely have a duty to keep moving forward and do things the right way rather than destroy or rather than challenge or rather than accumulate. And the thing that I'm always struggling with is what will be the message that makes people realize that? Because when you do, it becomes very hard to not behave in a way which is, which is positive for the world. I study that a lot because, of course, of my work on artificial intelligence and scary smart and so on. And I have to say the mass is actually overwhelmingly positive. So when you mm. really think, I mean, maybe not to the extreme of having the rebels that might have killed her son work on her farm. But if you really think about humanity in general, here on Slow Mo, one of my favorite guests ever was Edith Ager. And Edith was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah who, when you hear her story and how she described the ladies that were with her in the camp as her sisters and what she did to keep them alive and to console them and to make them feel beautiful and, and so on, you realize that most of what we see about World War II 
is misrepresentation because yes, of course, the violence gets the spotlight. The acts of the Nazi Germany makes us believe that humanity is despicable, really. But so many of the victims, the stories were not presented and those were amazing, amazing heroes, every single one of them. And that is true with everything. Yeah. I always say there must be more people kissing tonight than couples fighting. And the ones that will make the newspaper tomorrow are not only the ones that are fighting, they are the ones where someone hit the other on the head. But there is a misrepresentation in the mathematics. Humanity in general is more Edith's than Hitler's. And particularly at the group level, right? So I've sometimes wondered whether or not it's a system issue rather than a individual yeah. issue. Because if I reflect back on when things have gone horribly wrong, they've gone horribly wrong at a system level. They're talking about a nation state, for example, as a system, or it might be particular faction or large group. But actually, most of us, you know, all families are a bit dysfunctional and, you know, you can fall out with your friends. But in general, at a smaller group level, we work pretty well. And, and like you said, I think, you know, there'll be plenty of, there'll be more people today enjoying conversations with their friends and there will be people murdering their friends, hopefully. There'll be more <laughs> people today, you know, like you said, kissing their partner rather than fighting. And, but here's the thing, maybe, maybe we've forgotten to look at the middle of the curve and we only look at the edges now. We only look at the very, very horrible murders or the incredibly celebrity beauty and love because maybe everything else we've been taught culturally doesn't deserve observing anymore and maybe that's one of the keys is for culture to realize that what we refer to as the beauty of the mundane is not mundane it is just the beauty yeah, I think, it, I think it's the whole of the beauty, to be honest. Mm. I think the idea of being able to, to really enjoy the real moments, not the extreme or the manufactured moments. Believe it or not, this is the theme of my year. You know, I, I always start every year with a, a New Year's intention. And this, to me, is the year of joy. It's a year where I'm attempting really, really hard to take a moment where I'm simply walking to buy my salad and enjoy, yeah. enjoy the walk and then enjoy the salad. And before that, enjoy the conversation with the person that's going to make my salad and then enjoy a bit of silence after I finish. And there is so much in life that is not mundane at all if you give it the right amount of attention. And yet I think the capitalist media machine, if you want, is attempting to use our brain biases to focus only on extremes and is just bombarding us with those. I mean, we're very aesthetic animals. We love beauty, we love order in our own way, but we're also very malleable to the extent that we will accept what the group thinks is beauty and order. And you're right, I think the capitalist system has benefited from that plasticity by saying, right, this is beauty and order, you need to buy these things to be beautiful, and this is what constitutes beauty, and this is how you lay out your home to make it beautiful. But it distracts us sometimes because I'll give you an example. My Instagram is basically just me taking pictures of things that I see when I'm walking around. It's not particularly fancy, but I often get people saying, oh, no, that looks really amazing. Why did you decide to take a picture of that puddle? Why did you just, why did you take a picture of your glasses like that? I don't know, because, because sometimes 
you can see something and recognize the beauty in something very otherwise ordinary. And when you start to see it, it opens up a whole universe to you. When you notice the beauty of a building reflected in a puddle, when you notice the beauty of the shadow that's cast by your glasses on the table when you're on a plane, when you see the fact that you look into your wine glass and the sun's reflected and it creates this kind of crystal type effect... When you start to kind of allow yourself to realize that without thinking it's stupid to look at things like that, there's a whole world that opens up to you. You know, it's almost a psychedelic experience. It's it's remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is that as children, we do that anyway. And then it's kind of drilled out of us through our education system to look for those remarkable bits of beauty around us. That is so, so eye-opening. I mean, I do that all the time. I actually write about the exercise that I normally used to do when I walked to work, when I had to walk to work in Silicon Valley, where I would take a beautiful picture every day. Never posted it on Instagram, but I will ask your permission to use that idea and start posting them as well. Please do, sir. Yeah, because it spreads happiness and joy as well. I think the idea, however, is that we have ignored those moments when when you really really think about it i don't know if i've ever really enjoyed something that was so grandiose i mean sometimes you know i always say inception is my favorite movie of all mm. time simply because of the message that's behind it you know you really need to watch it a few times to start asking yourself are we in a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream which is a, in my mind a very mind bending question i think but most of the time you know you just enjoy just a tiny like it doesn't have to be as such a big production or joy is normally found in the simplest of things i find it is and it's funny because sometimes when you when you notice things that are beautiful and ordinary you sort of almost persuade yourself to look away because ah you know it's only this or that and that that to me is quite sad because for some reason culturally we've decided that only big complex things have beauty so the grand canyon might be beautiful but the reflection of the clouds in a small puddle outside your home isn't and so it's odd because to me both things are equal in their beauty even though the scale is different we're taught to think that some big magnificent rare bird at a zoo is beautiful but then this morning, as I was, you know, having a coffee, getting ready, there was some tiny little garden bird that was, you know, hopping around on the balcony. And so pretty. My cat was absorbed. I was, was just enthralled watching it. And just that little moment of beauty. I know it sounds strange, but it was so wonderful. It makes you well up. Like it fills you with this emotion like, oh, this is just incredible. Mm. And that's an amazing thing to take with you into the day. And I know we're kind of getting into quite an odd realm of discussion here, let's say, but this is this is such an important thing in life because if you don't allow that to happen now, when will you? Because later is not resolved. I think, again, the math of this is staggering because literally you may get to the Grand Canyon for four hours of your entire life, but that bird is around every minute of every day. Imagine the waste 
when you really think about it. It's, it's quite funny that we bring this up now because right before we started our conversation, I, you know, a friend of mine is coming to visit Dubai from Europe. And, and basically the list of things that were proposed to be done included, you know, going to see the Expo 2020 and going to see the Abu Dhabi uh, Sheikh Zayed Mosque and going to do this and going to do that. And I answered in a very unusual way. And I, I asked myself, maybe I have a brain defect or I'm boring like hell. <laughs> because I answered and I said, memorable experiences do not normally, in my mind, do not normally need entertainment. I actually find that the entertainment is a distraction. I mean, I would much rather enjoy a deep connection and a conversation and perhaps, you know, a walk on the beach right near my home. And that beach to me is going to be as memorable as any other beach that I could travel 6,000 miles to go to. And in my mind, I, I always question if I'm boring like hell or if I have a brain defect, but I really don't need entertainment in my life because maybe because so many of the small things actually give me joy. And I think that's the right way to be. I think the, the defect is if, if you're not able to enjoy that. I think the defect is when you need an intense manufactured experience to feel some kind of joy. Because surely, surely the conclusion of that must be that life has numbed you so much that you need a jackhammer to wake you up. Whereas if you have been able to free your mind of having been numbed by the processes of daily life, then you'll see the joy and beauty in everything. I don't mean that in the kind of hyperbolic way where, you know, you see people who just walk around smiling all the time because, you know, life for every moment of beauty, there'll be a moment of pain or a moment of sadness and that's fine too. But we have to realize that when our lives, requ lives require extreme experiences to feel alive, naturally it means that we've been numbed to that point. And as a result, by the way, even when you get those experiences, they're so far and there is so much lost in between. Well, exactly. It's that classic phrase people talk about, oh, I live for the weekend. Or they'll say, I will be happy when, and the when might be, I get that big house, or I get that nice car, or I get that whatever. And it's like you just said, when you anchor your lives around those big, extreme, rare events, you're ignoring the fact that you're, you're basically a big ticking clock otherwise. <laughs> and yeah. you're ignoring the fact that by anchoring your life around those big, rare events, you've become numb. And becoming numb is tantamount to having died when you're alive. Uh, let me take you from there to your TED talk, which is how to save your life. Mm. What was that question? Like, how do I save my life? What's wrong with my life? So this was the thing. So when we spoke earlier and I talked about the anxiety and depression episodes that I had, and you said what a lot of people said at the time, which is, well, I wouldn't have guessed from looking at you or knowing you. And maybe that should have pushed me into the world of acting, but it's a truism. People probably wouldn't have known. But inside there was a deep turmoil that I was fighting. And like I said, it, you know, it got me very close to no, no longer being on this, in this mortal coil. And there had to come a point where enough was enough. There had to come a point where either I did something about it or I was going to kill myself. And that was the process of discovery. That was how to save your own life because it started with delegation. It started with absolving myself of the responsibility for saving it on my own. Oh, wow. That's a big message. 
it meant that I was able to delegate the responsibility of that to my counselor, to my friends, realizing that they are all responsible for keeping you alive in their own way. It also meant just facing up to the responsibility for yourself and that realization that, yes, other people are going to be responsible for your well-being in their own way, but ultimately, no one's going to come and save you. That's your job. And you have to want to be saved. You have to want to, you have to feel like your life is worth saving. And that's where, again, it comes down to injecting things into your life that have meaning and purpose beyond the accumulation of things. Because if all you do is accumulate things, then your life surely will have aesthetic value, but not necessarily meaning. But the meaning aspect of life is a bit that wants you to stay, that means you want to stay alive. And that's the bit I had to do much, much more of. I think I will end here. <laughs> I can talk to you for 17 hours, but I, I want to I <laughs> leave people with this last thought to, to uh, and I probably will, by the way, uh, because so you're not going to escape me. No, but I, I want to leave people with this thought. The idea that asking for help is normally probably the most difficult thing for people, especially when we're going through tough times. And I think your first statement is, no, 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 actually I can delegate saving my life, but it doesn't have to be as extreme as saving my life. I can delegate improving my life. I can delegate understanding my life, getting to know myself better by going out to people and asking for help. I think asking for help is really, really key. But that at the end of the day, I think the reality of the matter is that it all comes back down to me and the choices that I make. And the choices that I make may not always lead me to become the pilot, which was the dream that I had as a child. They may take me through other passages in life. But somehow, as you clearly demonstrate, every time those choices were made, they were made with a commitment to do the best that you can to survive failure, but also to do something that's good for humanity. And I'm, I'm trying to sum up my new friend here because I think these simple, simply stated values in my personal view are actually the absolute keys to success in life. You know, it's the idea of I can ask for help. I'm in charge, but I'm not in charge for collecting more money only and conquering this newly established capitalist machine. I'm in charge to make my life the best it is. I'm in charge to make the world a better place, as you rightly said, a cleaner room than when I walked in. I think this is incredible. I'm so, so grateful that I met you. I think there will be tons of, tons of coffee or are you a tea person? I hope you're not coffee. a tea person. I, coffee I live on coffee. Yeah, and, you know, and, and I'm just very grateful for what you do, Mo. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak to you on your show and... I remember when we had our conversation last week, you know, I really felt a really good connection. So I hope this is also the yeah. start of a, of a friendship and we can break bread together. Absolutely. I think as we let people leave this now, you and I will be pondering very complex topics together. I think there is a, and maybe every now and then you and I can come back on slow-mo and tell people, oh, we've been discussing this for a while and we're completely lost, but it's so interesting. You should know about it. I think that's a wonderful place to be. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an honor to have you on the show. 
Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining us. I'm absolutely certain that you enjoyed this as much as I did, but I would probably encourage you to go back and listen to it again. There were so many nuggets of gold in this conversation, and I think many of them are life-changing. So I, if you do value some of that, go and listen to it again, but also tell your friends about it, post about it if you want to spread the word, and hopefully discuss it with me and Vikas and Mia, you know, your comments or questions on social media. More and more, by the way, I find it easier for me to focus on messages on Instagram. So if you want to find me, find me on Instagram, mo underscore Gaudet. And uh, yeah, I do go to the other social media platforms, but a little less often now. And uh, yeah, I will always be very grateful for the alibi that you gave me to meet amazing new friends and have wonderful conversations and actually take time out of my day to slow down and ponder topics that are so, so important for our life. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.